Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Poplar Tapes. This is a podcast where we host conversations about the intersections of philosophy and politics. My name is Keegan Irish, and today I will be joined by my friend Patrick Case, and we're going to be discussing a chapter from Chris Hedges' latest book, America, the Farewell Tour. So I hope you'll find this material that we're covering as fascinating as we did. And, uh, let's get to it. Yeah, so uh, today I'm here with my friend Pat, and uh, we thought that we would discuss um, this Chris Hedges text. So he's written a book fairly recently called America, the Farewell Tour, and uh, there's one chapter in there in particular that we're interested in called Hate. So uh, we've been interested in Chris Hedges for a long time. He's got some really, uh, really interesting stuff to say. And uh, he's worth engaging with, even if he is a bit of a controversial figure at times. So, Pat, do you think you could just like explain um, what the book is about overall? And then we'll talk about this chapter in particular. Yeah, yeah. So, um, America the Farewell Tour is uh, sort of a look at uh, the um, social and cultural uh, decline of the United States and uh, the disintegration of American empire. Um, in many ways, it sort of represents a um, sort of a culmination of Hedges' earlier texts where he looks at different aspects of, uh, of American society with um, books like um, uh, The Death of the Liberal Class, uh, which looks at the sort of the abandonment of uh, intellectual liberalism in its task of governing the country, uh, uh, this, the triumph of spectacle, uh, another one which looked at, um, yeah, again, the, uh, I guess, the rise of spectacle as the, mm-hmm. I guess, predominant cultural yeah. language. Um, he's addressing most of this uh, within America, the Farewell Tour. So each chapter is sort of broken down and looks at a, a certain aspect of American society, uh, American culture. Um, and, uh, looks back on how we, how that might, uh, how this reflects, I guess, the decline in American empire and, um, yeah, some of the issues facing it. Yeah. And so in this chapter in particular, um, we're interested in it because here he sort of cashes out something that he's been doing, uh, through his columns and truth dig for a while, which is his critiques of what he calls the violence of Antifa, right? Yeah. <laughs> and this is what we're interested in particular. But the chapter is actually much broader than that, and he embeds that critique, which, you know, elsewhere he has kind of written about that specifically, but he embeds that critique here in a larger discussion of um, hate and the way that, like, a hyper-masculine obsession with violence characterizes um, the experience of dispossession and malaise that people experience in the wake of, like, global capitalism. Yeah. Um, Sort of breaking apart those bonds of traditional community, breaking down those beliefs and rituals, he says, and communal structures. So this... in uh, it, he kind of sees capitalism as uprooting a lot of traditional communities, right? Which causes this kind of like anger and hatred that gets expressed through these acts of violence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like for the you know the much of it must be the first half of the chapter at least mm-hmm. he's really focusing on on the right wing and on these characters. It it opens examining you know Dylan Roof. 
you know, Dylan Roos' manifesto. It goes on to it goes on to you know cover people, uh, some of the survivalists uh, at a at a survivalist conference. You know, he's yeah. he's really looking at uh, he's really looking at some of the at uh, the individual sort of, um, but I guess the, uh, the the mentalities produced by the ruptures created by mm-hmm. uh, you know global capitalism. I think. Yeah, and so it is kind of classic, really like unflinching style. He exposits what these folks are thinking, what their experiences of life are like. And I feel like reading it, you almost get the sense of just being lost in like this ocean. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, there's, it feels overwhelming when you're reading it. Yeah. You know, the detail that he goes into and to these groups, how kind of far gone they are. And so he opens it with, uh, this citation from Hannah Arendt's, uh, Origins of totalitarianism, which says the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the dedicated communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, the reality of experience, true and false, the standards of thought no longer exist. Mm -hmm. And you could really see the way that that informs these discussions that happen because he's looking at people who basically live in a fantasy world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, in the case of Dylan Roof, in the case of these kind of bikers for Trump or whatever, and then these survive Mormon survivalists and so on. Like, he just gives so many examples in a kind of journalistic style of how purely fantastical their universe is. Yeah, one gets the impression they're they're just sort of <laughs> they're sort of these makeshift uh, the makeshift like worldviews that are just somehow welded together from mm-hmm. the like sort of the the, the flotsam of pop culture, you know, mm-hmm. just just put together uh, in this really haphazard way. Um, but yet at the same time, the, the, he's very much he does also sort of focus on uh, and continually brings it back into focus at the uh, uh, you know the economic um, the economic imp- like causes I guess at the root of it yeah definitely you know, constantly brings it back he's constantly bringing it back and looking at like how these people you know have been you know struggle in a globalized economy and uh, yeah yeah and so. he, he does try and kind of draw out this through line between the different people that he's covering where all of them have been economically dispossessed like mm-hmm. he looks at in the bike bikers for Trump section he's talking to that woman who lost her job and then she had all this time all of a sudden to devote to going on facebook and developing these ideas about islam and you know and then it's similar with a lot of the other people that he covers or he goes to great lengths to describe you know dylan roof only ever had one job and Mm. it was barely a meaningful job at all so economic dispossession is the through line that he tries to chart here, I would say, right? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he's kind of making this argument that uh, the project of globalization was a sham, um, that the promise of democracy and rationalism is not cashed out for people, mm-hmm. um, and the reality that they experience is deindustrialization and social decay. Yeah, and I, I think the uh, I think one of the best passages that sort of summarizes that when mm-hmm. he says that uh, you know the proponents of globalization promised to lift workers across the planet into the middle class and instill democratic values and scientific rationalism, religious and ethnic tensions would they insisted be alleviated or eradicated? This global marketplace would create a pe- peaceful, prosperous community of nations. All we had to do was get government out of the way and kneel before market demands, held up as the ultimate form of progress and rationality. 
What we were never told was that the game was fixed. We were always condemned to lose. Our cities were deindustrialized de and fell into, de in into decay. Wages declined. Our working class became impoverished. The rapacious appetite of capitalists and imperialists never considered such constraining factors, Mishra wrote, as finite geographical space, de degradable natural resources, and fragile ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's bang on. And so it, there is this real kind of attempt that we find throughout to root these issues, these many different issues, into these economic structures. And there's almost like a Marxist impulse there, right? Yeah. To say that these class antagonisms produce these like superstructural, fantastical kind of mental worlds that people inhabit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they come up with the fantasies about whatever, going to meet Jesus and watching Abraham Lincoln write the Declaration of Independence <laughs> and all this crazy shit, oh, right? God, like, yeah. this was... So it, you get the sense that he thinks that, that those fantasies are a are an effect of the economic dispossession yeah. that these people experience. Right? Yeah, and the and the, and the sort of uh, the sort of assault on on any on many of our forms of like traditional ideas of, of community mm -hmm. that just have been have been like decimated by this and with this relentless uh, atomization of uh, like I guess I'd call it capitalist individualism, married mm -hmm. individualism. You know, and it, and so many of these people, that's what they say, you know, it's, it, it, one of the guys that they talk to is part of the, one of the militias, I think, he says uh, that, that, yeah, you know, it, it gets me out of the house, you know, working, or uh, he's a proud boy, that's what he yeah. is, you know, it gets me out of the house, I, I, I work, you know, 12 hours a day, and it, it's good to feel like I'm, you know, part of something, I'm getting back to that, and, yeah. you know, it, it really, it just points so... so succinctly to the, the, the devastation of, like, these, like, so many of the... Uh, yeah, I guess these at least forms of community and mm -hmm. of, um, and of uh, shared shared caring. I guess yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would say he, the chapter is very convicting in that sense. Like yeah. he does a good job, like examining these people's experience and tracing it back to these kind of economic root causes, and basically holding that up as like a, a moral problem right mm -hmm. like he says you know this is the society that we made or whatever this is the civilization yeah. that we have these are the promises that were given this is how they didn't fall through and look at the human cost mm -hmm. of that failure it has bred this seething hatreds mm -hmm. of the other yeah. you know in order to generate new forms of community in order to generate new forms of meaning in order to resituate yourself i think in a mm -hmm. in a world that has just been so yeah i don't know how i'd characterize it but a world that is, just, that is I, I think has grown exponentially and beyond like beyond <laughs> Beyond borders and beyond yeah. that, and beyond like even the simple like I think some of the, yeah, uh, yeah some of the simple like even just in like community so much informed now by technology but uh, anyway this is a bit of a bit of a tangent no yeah no it's all good it's all good <laughs> maybe we can um, zero in a little bit here so yeah, I was interested yeah. in so uh, I'll I'll just read this quote. Mm -hmm. Briefly, and then we can talk about that, and I'll br bring out a couple reasons why I wanted to bring it up. So he writes, uh, the malaise that inf infects Americans is global. Hundreds of millions of people have been severed by modernity from traditions, beliefs, and rituals, as well as communal structures, uh, which keep them rooted. 
They have been callously cast aside by global capitalism as superfluous. This has engendered an atavistic rage against the technocratic world that condemns them. This rage is expressed in many forms. Nativism, neo-fascism, jihadism, the Christian right, alt-right, militias, and the anarchic violence of Antifa. Mm. <laughs> the resentment springs from the same deep wells of despair. So you can see what he's doing here, right? Like, he is inscribing Antifa and what he sees as leftist violence in the same structure or root cause as yeah. these forms of right-wing violence. Yeah. And so I want to talk about the way that he does that a little bit. One thing that interesting thing that I noticed is that so he talks about this destruction of like the communal structures and the webs that hold societies together and yeah. everything like this. And he talks about how that operates in the Middle East mm. and um, under Islam, where these traditional like modes of belonging were attacked and destroyed through colonial power. And so, but what he says, interestingly, is that. Um, in place of their like former political expressions, what you find is the anarchist propaganda of the deed taking over. Yeah. So he makes this connection between terrorism in the context of like jihadists kind of anti-colonial struggle and the propaganda of the deed, which is this anarchist idea um, where uh, kind of, very visible or gratuitous act of violence is committed in order to call attention to underlying existing class conflicts, which is usually glossed over or not brought into the open, yeah. right? So this is the idea of the propaganda of the deed. And he actually, he put, so he connects Muslim terrorism to the propaganda of the deed. I thought that and was a really interesting Yeah, and with that European uh, anarchic tradition, which is, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, I hadn't picked up on that, but um, I think that uh, the parallels are intriguing because then, because then that's, but then I wonder like how that, how that plays into the, the eventual critique of the sort of uh, anarchic structure and the, uh, and like the, that anarchic violence of Antifa as he calls it. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what I thought, is that that is, like, his way of inscribing that connection earlier than we might mm. normally see it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. when he's talking about critiquing Antifa now, like, we think about the modern American context, the modern Canadian context, mm. what modern European context, and so on. But he is like, taking a step back to connect these older anarchist ideas to... Um, the kind of emergence of jihadism, which he calls like the death of Orthodox Islam. I thought that connection is important mm -hmm. just to draw out the way that he um, is inscribing these kinds of violence as similar. And so he does a sim he does yeah. a, he does that move again later on. Where I, see he talks, what, I see more, yeah. Yeah, where he talks about his disagreement with Mark Bray. So Mark Bray is the guy who wrote uh, the Antifa handbook. handbook. Yeah. And... You know, so Chris Hedges is like, the problem in Nazi Germany wasn't that the left wasn't violent enough, it's that the left <laughs> was too, too violent, violent. Yeah. right? That this, and that then these uh, forces of capital side with the fascists over the communists. Yeah, invariably. Yeah. yeah. So he says, 
increasing the balance on the left was an extremely ineffective strategy because it ultimately led to these existing structures siding with the Nazis. And that's kind of a historical point that I don't know exactly how to like litigate that or to make sense. Like, is Mark Bray right there? Is he right there? Is, you know what I mean? Yeah. I found that a little... Because he spends a lot, a surprisingly large amount of time on that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Although I wonder if maybe we, uh, like, if we turn to, like, more more recent examples. Um, I mean, I think of the, uh, uh, <laughs> what were they called in in, uh, in West Germany? The, uh, the I want to say the Stern Gang. That's not yeah. at all. That, no, that, that's those are radical Zionists. Yeah. Um, the uh, Bader-Meinhof. Uh, right. That, like, yeah. that, like. He enormous escalation of just like intense violence mm-hmm. by by Stasi backed you know leftist radicals. It, it was supposed to produce this this revolutionary sort of uh, this revolutionary fervor mm-hmm. within within West Germany or some somehow incite some sort of revolutionary movement. But I mean, so I wonder if maybe like, but it's uh, and on a similar level, that didn't that didn't make anyone I don't think uh, West Germans sympathetic to uh, to <laughs> to right. an idea of a, a unified right. social socialist German stated yeah. it just further solidified uh, this sort of connection and uh, determination to uh, side with Western Europe against the perceived Soviet yeah. uh, Soviet sort of Threats. onslaught there yeah, yeah. And, yeah. no and so you'd say like there's a tactical point that he's yeah. making there yeah and it's very interesting to look at it at the level of tactics mm-hmm you know, he has a disagreement with Antifa at the level of tactics. But I, this, I think, also cashes out like at an ideological level. So it's like, because it betrays, not betrays, but it demonstrates Hedge's idea of how change takes place. Mm. Like He yeah. thinks that there are going to be mass uprisings that will overthrow the corporate state and that that is the only realistic tactic in order to um achieve those goals you know change yeah yeah and i think the issue that he runs into is that because of his theory of change and his idea about about change which is almost like a more moral version of like a marxism you know yeah because of his theory about change um he runs into this conflict with anarchists who I think just have a different theory of change. Yeah. You know, like they don't believe that they're, I mean, obviously I'm not speaking for every anarchist or whatever, but Mm -hmm. many anarchists and people who participate in Antifa and so on don't think that these mass uprisings are realistic. They look at Occupy, which he cites as kind of like a highlight. They look at Occupy and see it as a failure. They look at these large scale marches and see them as, ultimately sort of pointless, you mm-hmm. know, and ineffective because they're so often co-opted by liberals, by the, um, how do you say, like charitable industrial complex, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're just brought back into the fold of these things. And a lot of anarchists look at the world and say, that's not going to make change, but it's going to exacerbate some of these tensions. And we're just going to watch these large structures break apart. Mm-hmm. And we are here to protect our communities and to kind of pick up the pieces um, in the face of that collapse rather than um, uh, imagining that there is this possibility of like large-scale uprising and change. And you can see the way that he's trying to say that's why it's the same as 
these preppers or whatever yeah. who believe in the yeah. co- coming collapse. Um, so I think that there are there's an argument there and it's two different theories of change and he doesn't really bring that into the open in the text mm-hmm. to like talk about it at that level. Yeah, it sort of seems to be understood that it's like that, that uh, you know, the, that his, these, his sort of concepts here are come from his own experience as like as a reporter. Um, you know, he, he repeatedly brings up Yugoslavia and the, disintegra- and the, the disintegration of uh, uh, Yugoslavia, the balkanization there, which when you think of that and him bearing witness and like him witnessing that, it, it does sort of make it does sort of make sense with that uh, with that uh, uh, the idea of like meaningful change taking place in the, on the level this broad level because he's seen this sort of that sort of balkanization takes place that takes place and it's like it's easy enough for anarchists to I think for for I, I guess I should say for one with an anarchist perspective to say well we're gonna step back and watch like these systems disintegrate but like what does that path hold like I think well he's we, you know we saw it we've mm-hmm. seen it in the Balkans and it's this like it's this breakdown of just brutal militia warfare like ethno yeah. like militia warfare so totally. it's not enough to just say like well we're gonna opt out of you know trying to build a broad movement so mm-hmm. like I wonder, like, I wonder with that attitude, like, what, yeah. what does that, like, produce? Like, just, like, self-defense, like, communities that just defend yeah. the... And I think that's why we kind of have to listen to him on this yeah. point, is because he has, you know, a lot of us living here in the, in the core of the, like, industrial empire. Yeah. Like, we haven't experienced that, mm-hmm. you know? And so, for us, these ideas of, like, change and social change are our theories, whereas yeah. he's, like had this very this journalistic experience is very visceral i think it comes through in yeah. a lot of this where it's like he ends up coming to these theoretical um commitments by way of that journalistic experience and mm-hmm. that is like why i find it compelling yeah because yeah. a lot of the things that he says i might be more readily dismiss them yeah had, if i didn't know that about him you know what i mean yeah which definitely which definitely feeds into that point about uh, about uh so the, the strong criticism of violence that comes across yeah. and and just this like constant insistence that you know we the left surrenders its moral you know moral like uh, moral authority mm-hmm. and even though i do like myself i have issues with that but if you if you've read it if We've read uh, War is a Force that gives us meaning. Yeah. His, his look at, uh, at at war and how it operates to to, to provide this uh, yeah spiritual direction. I think for 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 nations and just communities, it, it, that comes from his place as a war journalist and mm-hmm. and hearing his experiences in El Salvador are it's nightmarish. It's like it's frightening, and I think he's like that and like that just that experience with uh, and like knowing firsthand. Um, what these what what violence does to an individual i think is like it, it makes it hard to it makes it like i think impossible to ignore because yeah. he's like it, it's easy enough again for for so for like and for like people on the left to um you know, uh, to celebrate this idea of like violent action against fascists, mm-hmm. but what does that do to a person? You know, and i think that's like he's 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 well versed on the just abhorrent effects that has yeah he's very tuned to that yeah yeah and yeah so it's kind of a lot of interesting themes here but one thing he brought up is that his idea of the left surrendering moral authority Mm. and i just wanted to point out that the term he uses is actually moral capital moral capital Uh, okay and i found that very i don't know just interesting like it 
I don't know if I can make a whole kind of point of that, but I just want to call attention to it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's interesting that that is the language that he chose to use in that context. And it comes back to this question of like his theory of change, you mm-hmm. know, because in his mind, you need the moral capital on the left in order to meaningfully make change. Otherwise, um, you're dealing in violence. And he says the corporate state knows how to speak that language and will do so far more effectively than you can ever dream of doing. Yeah. And there's something to be said for that, right? Um, Mm. That's clearly not wrong. But the other thing that he implies there is that Antifa and the Black Bloc oppose organized movements. And he says this ensures their powerlessness. Mm. I feel like that is sort of an unfair jab. um, Because in many cases, the same people involved in... Antifa and Black Bloc are also yeah. organizing in their own communities. <laughs> they're also doing this other stuff. Yeah, like yeah. they're doing the behind the scenes work. They're, you know, and that just that seemed a little like an uncalled for shot. And I think that, which brings me to another point, which is that Hedges, at a certain point, he just says beef with Antifa. <laughs> yeah. Like he points out that like people come to his speaking events with signs that say fuck you, Chris Hedges and shit. And he gets death threats. Yeah. So <laughs> like he just has like a beef. Yeah. And this is, like, something that we actually uh, talked about before. Because he drops some talking points where you're like, he must know that he's doing, like, that he's rubbing he people the wrong right. way. Yeah. Like, is that deliberate? You know? And some of those were, like, ah, man, the one that bothers me the most is this idea that, like, identity politics is a dead end and that it's squelching free speech. Yeah. Just thrown off with yeah. this, like, utter, like, casualness and... But he's such a smart person. How, yeah. How could he not like know exactly what he's doing? Like, yeah. It's, like, it's, it's yeah. It seems deliberately designed to just like provoke and yeah. like to and to uh, yeah. And so I wonder why. Like I honestly wonder why that's in there. Yeah. Because you don't see him as the kind of guy who is like. I mean, it, free speech is not. I mean, just to make the point explicit that mm. I think for us like we already know, but to yeah. make uh, say it out loud, um, like. Free speech is not the same thing as, like, being platformed. Yeah. You know? Like, (laughs) having your voice heard through, like, a large-scale media apparatus and having it valued. Mm -hmm. Right? And so what... When the left and Antifa, let's say, come out to, like, prevent someone from speaking, we're like, we do not want this fucking person to speak in our city. (laughs) We do not want them to speak on our college campus, whatever, you know? For example, I was at, like, um, a demonstration last year when, like, Steve Bannon came to Toronto and there mm-hmm. were uh, big demonstrations, including members of Antifa were there. Yeah. <laughs> because we don't want Steve Bannon to be given a platform to pretend as though it's just freedom of speech yeah. when he's being um, upheld in, like, one of the nicest venues. Like, not everyone gets to speak there. Yeah, and being know? legitimated. He's being legitimate. Yeah. And so there's a difference there. Yeah, he can say whatever he wants at home. That's completely, or like to his friends, that is very different than being listened to by hundreds or thousands of people in this event where you're highly paid. Like this, this argument about free speech just ignores those structures of material, um, like empowerment. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like Steve Bannon's being empowered over somebody else. Right. Like he spoke that night and not somebody else. So free speech is not just an open level playing field. It is a um, hierarchical uh, system of opportunity. Right. And Antifa is fighting in that 
very real context. It's not an arbitrary thing where they're like, oh, we just don't think you should be allowed to say what you want. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's not true, you know? Yeah. Obviously, they don't care what you say to your friends. They, it's not important. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference there, and he just throws this out as though it's obvious or as though that debate is settled or, mm-hmm. or not openly being had, and I find that honestly confusing. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know if that, like... <laughs> Those lines, like, I don't even know that they actually add anything to his argument. I think, if anything, they just, they just weaken it. And I, yeah. I, 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 can't, I can't, for the life of me, understand why they're sort of put in there. Totally. And I mean, it, yeah, it's just sort of <laughs> rang off. Um, yeah, I'm looking at it now. And another very fall. And, uh, yeah, it, and I feel like there, there could be something that, there could be something said for, mm-hmm. well... Certain ways in which, you know, identity politics are deployed, particularly, like, by, like, the Democratic Party. I think there, yeah. there's definitely something that, it's, like, good points that could be made there. But mm-hmm. instead, it's just this, like... Throwaway line. Offhand thing. And the weirdest part is, I like, who does he think is reading this? Does he yeah. think, like, does he think, like, right-wing people, like... <laughs> Are like gonna be convinced? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are, gonna, are gonna go looking for to, to Chris Hedges for some like insight, and they're yeah. gonna see this and be like, "Well, <laughs> actually, that was a great you know. point." <laughs> yeah, so. so it does kind of beg the question of audience there, mm-hmm. which actually brings me to another point that I wanted to bring up, mm-hmm. um, which is that. Just to kind of tie a couple of things together, I think, like this theory of change, his question of like these people living in this fantasy world and um, this question of like the hyper masculinity seeking out like violent confrontation, you know, he wants to avoid that. So I think what he's doing is actually very what I would describe as pastoral. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's like he sees these people on the right. He sees these proud boys and these bikers and these even like a Dylan Roof and these dispossessed people like as people who are broken as the lost sheep who could potentially be brought back into the fold. You know, if only they would kind of disabuse themselves of these fantasies about the world and cope with the reality then the possibility of building community with them would be possible and like as in the kind of role of the pastor he sees himself and wants to like encourage us to see ourselves as responsible yeah. for those lost souls you know um in a way that a anti-fascist worldview isn't particularly interested in, you mm-hmm. know? It's like, no, we silence fascists. We shut them down. Like, all you fascists bound to lose. Like, yeah. You know, not we convert you fascists. We bring you to this place of, like, turning about and uh, entering into this community of love or something. Yeah. Although he does simultaneously sort of acknowledge explicitly in the book that Like, these people aren't going to be won over through argument or discussion. The only way that we can, like, affect, that we can, like, successfully, um, I think, put put these movements in abeyance is through successful reintegration into the economic, like, Mm -hmm. is is to ensure that these people, like, have well-paying jobs and, like, have, uh, you know, job security and financial security. And that's the only way that's, like, really going to be achieved. Um, 
Yeah, so I'm like also like uh, the, the, I'm I'm not too sure which path like uh, I'm not too, I'm not too sure how to uh, how to reconcile those two yeah. those two aspects because on the one hand that path yeah that pastoral element that he has particularly in the closing passages is so uh, is it inspiriting I guess mm-hmm. you know but then at the same time there is that explicit recognition that you know what like I like <laughs> the the only the only real way to successfully yeah to to effectively um, counteract the, the like the uh the flourishing of these movements is to is to reconfigure our economy and re- mm. re- reconfigure our society in order that it uh that it is more just and uh, but mm-hmm. i guess yeah <laughs> yeah and so that is an interesting question mark and again puts them at odds i think with a lot of anarchist perspectives Mm-hmm. Where anarchists, and I mean, might not be as sympathetic to that kind of very Christian um, sense of a pastoral morality mm-hmm. on the one hand, and then on the other, might not be very sympathetic to this class first idea of change and reintegration. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, it's building class solidarity is a good thing, but these racist xenophobic tendencies break down that solidarity. And even if we got those people jobs or whatever, would they stop having this racial animus? Yeah. You know, that's kind of the question mark for me where it's like, does that hatred really spring only from this cause of economic dispossession or um, is it a more kind of complex, multi-causal thing that even in the absence of the economic dispossession, those people would continue to hold on to those racial prejudices and ultimately that xenophobic hatred? Absolutely, but I think I think the uh, I think more more the idea there is, is not uh, is that so many of these people they're going to be more. Uh, more readily, like one is more readily open to these two new ideas and to these uh, and to um, to tearing down and I think to uh, to changing one's values and changing one's ideals. When certain like insec- once you remove that insecurity, that economic insecurity, I feel that opens up the space for much more meaningful dialogue. I think I think that's more like that's more what my understanding of it is that is that on the one hand, yes, like. You know, we need to have this economic reintegration, but I think, yeah, you're also you're also raising a good point. Well, that doesn't that doesn't isn't necessarily going to suddenly you know lead these like these attitudes to going extinct. But what that uh, what that what like an economic reintegration would would better allow for is the opening up that space in order to uh, in order to question and and uh, in order to question some of these like some of these beliefs that are held uncritically, mm-hmm. and to uh, and and to work towards a more more expansive, um, I guess inclusive like uh, you know attitude yeah. perspective. Yeah. So, yeah, and there also seems to be the impulse there. Like I think about his comments in the beginning about how like the South is like overrun with these conspiracy theories mm-hmm. about like neo-confederate values and like even the textbooks like yeah in the schools don't clearly like explain the reality of racial uh animus and so on and uh, like the historical violence of slavery and um 
what he seems to be kind of pointing there to is that if we could face reality more clearly and be more honest about history, yeah, then those attitudes would go away. In the sense that, like, you know, he brings out, he points out in Dylan Roof's journal where the guy says, like, I wish so bad that it was all true and that white people had done all these bad things to black people or whatever, yeah. but it's not true. And you got this weird, creepy moment. And I, I think one of the things he's pointing to is that. Like, that kid should never have been raised to believe that about the world. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, at no point. Like, he was failed by... On so many different levels. On so many levels, yeah, yeah. By being educated about the world around him. And, like, his sense of rootedness in history was, like, such a catastrophic failure, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think there's, like, a just a huge education component and, like, this idea that he's kind of pointing at with the opening uh, quote from Arendt, right? Where people need to be able to distinguish between what's true and what's not true. Yeah. And, like, it is not true that uh, there is no historical responsibility on the part of white people for slavery. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, pe- they need to be able to recognize that. Yeah. And so that seems to be a big part of what he's driving at, too, here. But... For me, that brings it back to this question of, like, the theory of change. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I, you know, surely you would agree that, like, we should not have education systems that, like, <laughs> falsely teach this uh, racial history, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, anyone would agree with that. But, like, how do you go about bringing, a, bringing to fruition a situation where that's not the case, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the question that is sort of... <sighs> Weirdly addressed in his theory of change, and I think I think that's like that just like lurks I think in in the background of any like question of um, just like it, the America like yeah. as such in the sense it's like you I I don't know that like any that that those crimes of colonialism and slavery that that they can never be addressed, you know? And there is this liberal attitude where it's like, oh, we can overcome them. We can, like, reconcile those divisions yeah. just through, but if we if we acknowledge it, but then, like, change our ways a bit differently, yeah. like, then it's going to be over. But, like, the, I don't think that, like, that's, I think, is to some extent, like, delusional. Like, yeah. there is no, there is no way to sort of solve this, like, gaping wound yeah. in on the heart of uh, on the heart of this like yeah. this place in this nation and exactly like a kind of a liberal idea of progress where it's like well we're moving towards the better society yeah. you know is ultimately not very convincing and I it's think, self-deceptive yeah like, it's it's because it, it, although sorry sorry to interrupt you there no, it's just yeah. like because now I think it's like well, what else you know it, what else is one supposed to believe that like <laughs> that we just have to hobble our way through our lives as, as like a, you know, as, as a community and as a nation, as like, mm-hmm. or, or what have you. It's like, we just got to hobble our way and continually acknowledge it. And just like, like yeah, it's, that's frightening. That's frightening. Yeah. yeah I know. It's, a, uh. it's an extremely difficult problem that I feel like Chris Hedges brings up here and doesn't adequately address with his kind of theory of change, which seems to lean pretty heavily on things like Occupy and those like popular Mm -hmm. uprisings when like, 
Although I gotta say, to be yeah. fair, this chapter is called Hate, and it's yeah. something like a hundred pages. I mean, <laughs> this could be yeah. if we're talking about hate in America. This is like could be its own volume. But, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. actually a relatively short uh, <laughs> meditation on, on hate. the subject. Yeah, exactly. No, that's very true. That's very true. So. Not that I expect him to solve it, yeah. you know, to solve these issues. <laughs> no, of but not. he also part of the structure of the chapter is this critique of mm-hmm. people who have their own visions of like how you might approach those problems. Yeah, you know, and he condemns them mm-hmm. on the basis of a kind of hypermasculine violence, which is debatable, right? How so? I like. I don't think that the violence carried out in a lot of anti-fascist work really has this kind of mob mentality that he's talking about. I think it's a lot more tactical than he's willing to give credit for. And I think that, as he actually points out, like from the perspective of Antifa, they are exposing contradictions that exist in the society already, Mm -hmm. you know? So is their role like uniquely violent, uniquely hyper-masculine? Like that is not that. I just don't find that he makes that case for me. I have trouble kind of accepting the argument there. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I see that, but I think, yeah, I think, I think the, the, the hyper-masculinity element is more, I think what he's more pointing to is how, I I don't think we can disentangle this, like, or disentangle, is that Mm -hmm. a word? The idea of regeneration through violence is like so, so just like classically American and I just like but I feel like on some level like I don't think we can fully say well this violence of Antifa you know or or, or anarchist violence is uniquely different like I think like I think when we're talking specifically in the context of the United States particularly in the United States of the late uh, like late 20th century early 21st century after like the, the refinement of um you know, cinematic propaganda uh, that, like, I don't think we can ever say that, like, that, uh, you know, movement, uh, or, like, act, like, movements such as these are, like, free of that and are free of the, uh, free of that, like, um, like, impulse, I guess, that, that free of that, free of that, like, that hyper, that, like, that hyper masculinity, I suppose is what I'm trying to say, is present on some level, just by virtue of it, of these movements being American, and, uh, you know, existing in the midst of this, like, world of the Western, and what, and the, the yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> okay, I totally, I totally hear where you're coming from, uh, <laughs> and I agree, um, but what about looking at it this way? Uh, so Franz Fanon talks about violence. Mm. And he talks about these condemnations of violence on the part of non-colonized bodies. Yeah. Where um, they have the ability to condemn that violence because they're not confronted with uh, brutal violence themselves day Today, mm-hmm. so he says, violence is not 
like a pure empty Cartesian plane mm, yeah. where things just confront each other and then that's when it's violence and this is when it's not. Like it is a very um, strictly hierarchical structure where there is an enormous uh, overbearing quantity of violence forced down upon colonized bodies. Yeah. And in some cases, they do what he calls the convulsion. They convulse. Mm-hmm. They cast back against this violent form of uh, oppression. Mm-hmm. And he says to say that those two things are the same is to ignore this extremely asymmetrical relationship to violence. So, and I think that that is the case in, let's say, like, colonial uprisings. Like, he's talking mm-hmm. especially about, like, the war for Algerian independence and like some of these things, right? Yeah. So the context is different, and maybe the asymmetry isn't as extreme in the case of Antifa as it is in the case of, like, old European colonial powers yeah, and, like, yeah. brutalizing people. Um, so there is something to be said there, but, um, nonetheless, those asymmetries continue to persist, Mm. right? And so people suffer violence and they do respond violently. And to say that those people should never respond violently or that they need to build up a certain moral capital by never... Uh, lashing out against that, never convulsing, never organizing in in, in a violent way, mm-hmm. seems to me a little like like there's a moral judgment there. Yeah. There's very much a moral judgment there. I think my my immediate thing I was gonna say was, well, you know, like Antifa, you know, is like it's a largely white thing, and I realized yeah. just in a heartbeat that like. <laughs> How absurd such an assessment would be but like I, I feel like that's sort of pointing towards like I feel like there's an under there's a lot of like underlying assumptions of what Hedges assumes these movements to be that yeah. is like really informing that uh, right because he like Hedges in nowhere in this chapter does he criticize uh, you know Black Panthers he doesn't yeah. criticize Black Lives Matter he doesn't bring up these instances of black rage and mm-hmm. like those and the convulsions of uh of African American communities, he yeah. he, ne- he at no point like criticizes that, and I think that's because he acknowledges there is legitimacy there, um, and so then with that in mind, I wonder if maybe um, maybe he he views Antifa as like as deserving of this intense criticism yeah. because there is a sort of assumption that it's like well it's these white middle class like folks you know play acting at revolutionaries yeah. which like. Isn't isn't really fair? Yeah. Is it is? is yeah. And, I, and I guess I wonder, like, it, does he think that? Because the two yeah. members of Antifa who he interviews in the chapter, he goes out of his way to say this person's Filipino. Yeah, they're racialized. Person, yeah, yeah. They, like he he points out that they're racialized. Um, and think about his. What about sorry? Yeah, maybe let me put it this way. What about his discussion of Charlottesville, mm-hmm. which is a conflict which is very much inscribed within the history of white racism against black people yeah. in America. I mean, it's rallying around a symbol of like brutal white supremacy. Yeah. And, uh, then it's a reaction against that, you know? Mm-hmm. And he basically says, you know, 
then Antifa made a tactical error in how they uh, responded to Charlottesville, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's like, is it because they're Antifa? Like, what about when it is inscribed in these larger narratives of um, racial conflict in the United States? Like, what do you do then? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's difficult to say exactly, like, who... He, what he thinks Antifa is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess more than, yeah, there's just, it raises more questions. Like I think now that we're talking about it, I'm realizing, yeah, there's like, it raises a lot more questions about like what, how we understand Antifa. And I think it's like, and I think to some extent that speaks to the success, the very success of their tactics. As yeah. far as you look at, uh, you know, with covering your face and like with this decentralized movement, it's, it's deliberately, it is deliberately designed to obfuscate and uh, and you know conceal some of, like the uh, their the, identity yeah the identity yeah. Like, the literal identity so yeah. I, I guess in some ways we can also view we can also view view, view hedges as just uh, you know so, so someone who is successfully yeah. you know, so just flummoxed by the, <laughs> the very <laughs> by the, the very terms on which antifa like constitutes itself yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, so it seems like there's a lot of interesting kind of contradictions here, but mm. I think that we could almost, like, his beef with Antifa seems to be, like, a big driving force here, where then he uses, he fills it with a lot of his kind of moral views of the yeah, world, yeah. which are, like, useful, I think, to tease out, because he is someone who is extremely morally motivated. Mm -hmm. Like he has like a certain kind of uh, righteous view on the world, yeah. which like commends itself to you as a reader and is something that I think the left can benefit from a lot. You know, mm -hmm. if like the left is often criticized for being like moral relativists or whatever. And here's somebody who is not in any way ever a moral relativist. Like here's somebody who very much just like, takes like a classic like Christian morality and just sticks with it and is like on this basis I am bringing up this condemnation of um, the American state as it exists in the world today yeah. and of uh, the whole capitalist world order and that's compelling yeah absolutely you know? and I wonder if like I'm, I'm like now like reimagining this chapter and it seems in many ways that uh you know the, his engagement with antifa uh, and like his understanding about antifa like acts as this, as a vessel for into which he can we can a vessel which crystallizes the sort of uh the failures of the left as hedges sees it yeah. to like to not engage with uh or, or not take up this um yeah th these like you know strongly moral positions uh and it, with these like very concrete sets of uh, understandings of of uh, what what the responsibility is of the of the left and and its aims. So yeah, 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 exactly. And so I guess what I would say is that those positions are com very compelling on their own terms, mm -hmm. and even necessary or valuable for the left, even when a lot of people might be skeptical of Chris Edges. Um, so I'll just say that first, but. It is unfortunate that Antifa becomes that canvas yeah. for him to pro project this uh, moral worldview. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that he is trying to not throw them under the bus, but that he sort of ends up punching left. Yeah. yeah. You know, 
And that's unfortunate. And he does say that, like, he goes out of his way to point out that there's no moral equivalency between, like, a Dylan Roof and Antifa. You know, like, he's he's very clear about that. And, uh, you know, he does seem to be making the case that he, from a tactical perspective, disagrees with, like, violent street confrontation. Mm -hmm. Which, again, fair enough. Like, those are, like, (laughs) legitimate positions to hold. And so I guess like it's just too bad when he really takes these shots that seem a little bit to come more from his like beef with Antifa than from his like principled moral perspective. Mm-hmm. Because when he sticks to his principled moral perspective, That's it's compelling. That's when he's yeah. most convincing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, I, I mean I think that's spot on. That that point about punching left uh, is is so is so striking because throughout the book. Uh, had just points out that the left has been so weakened by you know fifty years of concentrated anti-communist, anti anti-union activity that has been mm-hmm. has been decimated, and he he literally says it's our responsibility to you know rebuild like on the left. It's like that we this task isn't one of just like re reconfiguring our approach. It's about rebuilding an entire movement. Yeah, and so for to punch left uh, uh, like. Uh, Within the book, it's like it, it's like it seems like it doesn't. Tri- fit. Yeah, it seems rash. It seems rash. Yeah, and like and it does seem to be. I think like, yeah, like it seems to be a little bit unfair. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's really like what it comes down to is that Hedges makes some excellent points in this chapter, but the way that he inscribes Antifa and anarchist violence in the same. Um, genealogy genealogy <laughs> let's say yeah of right wing extremist violence mm-hmm. seems unfair yeah you know? absolutely so I, I think he's wrong on that point but he's right about a lot of things so yeah. it's a very interesting tension to watch him like work that out and it's a bit frustrating because when you do see him throw have those throwaway comments about identity politics or yeah. something like this it's it sucks you know yeah. you're like damn it, man, like, why'd you yeah. say that? Like, <laughs> you didn't have to, and it, it takes away from your overall argument, and the power of the kind of righteous rhetoric that you employ that is your bread and butter, and yeah. the really, like, cutting, um, honest, like, look-it-in-the-face journalism that makes this stuff so interesting to read, you that, know? That is the very light, like, the very life of the, of his, of his, yeah, of his, of his projects. Work. Yeah, yeah of, his, of his work. And, uh, and that comes out in this chapter, you know? Mm. Like, he has these unflinching portraits of people and what they believe and what they're up to, you know, even though they live in these fantasy worlds. Like, he goes and f- follows it through yeah. all the way to understand everything that they think, you know? And he's good at that. And then he still cares about them as people. Yeah, he he's genuinely concerned, yeah. and you it never it's never that snide like snide mockery. Yeah. Like even if someone makes themselves look totally stupid, yeah, he's right there, and he's he wants to know why, you mm-hmm. know, why, like why that? Why do you so, think this? Yeah, why are you coming? Yeah, to this but then at the same time, it's like yeah, and I think but like I think even this discussion is just like it like it exposes like I think it's so important to just have like to take a voice like hedges seriously i can under like i part of me understands why there are like just 
furious anarchists or furious like <laughs> you know furious uh, leftist tankies yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just like get the fuck out of here yeah. but like I, I, I like part of me understands that but mm-hmm. I feel like we can like only benefit from really taking really seriously grappling with what Hedges has to say you know so I think uh yeah, I think I, th- I think he's one of the most important voices on the left, even if it isn't necessarily a, as one of guidance, but one of challenging us uh, to to try and articulate a, 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 a more sophisticated and uh, more stronger grasp of, of what our goals are and uh, you know what are <laughs> what we desire, what we what we want to create as yeah. a movement and so, what we stand for. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. So yeah, actually, I think that's a great point to end on.